Good morning. Well, happy Easter. We are so excited that you came and joined us. And uh, we know how hard it is to get here. Uh, all the fighting about what to wear, where to go, who to sit by. Do we have to go to the really long service at 1030? You know, and that's the adults. And then it gets to the kids, you know, and do they have to go again and listen and sit and all the fun stuff and the parking space and the coffee and so we just, we acknowledge that it is hard to get here sometimes, and we're glad you're here. Um, there's nothing better you could be doing than celebrating the resurrection of Jesus this morning. And uh, we just want to acknowledge, you know, sometimes uh, we find ourselves in a hard place uh, to believe, in a hard time to believe that Jesus uh, is who he said he is. When we look at a failing culture, um, when we look at freedoms being stripped, we look at health declining, we look at mental illness, all of these things, uh, it can be hard uh, to look at Jesus and say, I, I believe. And what we want to do this morning is look in 2 Corinthians and just see that no matter our circumstances, uh, no matter our feelings, no matter our experiences, um, that the resurrection of Jesus is true regardless of any of those things and why that is good news. So I'm going to pray and then uh, we're going to hop into 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Let's pray. God, we love you. Uh, we praise you and we thank you um, that you love us, that you sent your son to die for us, that your son Jesus takes our place um, in bearing the wrath of God and bearing the consequences of our sin. And we are so grateful and thankful for Jesus. Um, it's our prayer that you would speak to us, that you would ignite us, that you would give us a passion for your name, a thankfulness for the price your son paid on the cross. Uh, that you would put in perspective all we have in Jesus, uh, that your words would speak and not mine. Uh, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we get to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, you could turn there. Uh, it's important that we realize when, when we look in our life and think, you know, it's, it's hard maybe right now to say you're a Christian. Um, the tag that comes with that or the maybe the baggage that comes with that claim. You're like, I don't know. When people think of our stance on marriage, on morality, on uh, parenting, on what's right, on what's wrong, and what it means to be a Christian, and sometimes we shy away. Uh, it's important to realize in the text that these Christians, uh, they did not have easy circumstances. To say that they believe, that they believe in Jesus, well, could mean possibly, especially if you're a Jew, that you would lose your family that you would be shunned from your community, that you would lose your job, that you'd be taken away from any power or authority, friendship, family, anything you had could be stripped away because you're literally within 30 years of saying, I believe in a man who was crucified, which is embarrassing, said he was God, and I'm saying he rose from the dead, and I believe him, and I'm going to follow him. Often mockery was associated with it. And so we, we hit familiar times with these people. So let's, let's look at our text here in verse 13 and kind of see what we draw out of it. It says, since we have the same spirit of faith, uh, according to what has been written, it says, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, 
so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. And so when we look at this text, is that these people saying they put their faith, they believe that Christ died, he rose, and that they were going to go and be with him in heaven with God the Father. And they believe this in spite of the political climate, in spite of any sickness they might have, any consequence of family. There was no circumstance that changed that they believe Jesus is who he says he is. And so this is what I kind of want to walk through this morning is that in our culture, they've kind of conditioned us to look at our circumstances, our feelings and our experiences, and see that somehow that either negates or affirms Jesus' death on the cross, that Easter somehow hinges on our experience and our feelings. And what we want to do is just look at the nature of what the Bible says and see, does that even make any kind of rational sense? Is it a good way to think about Christ? Is it a good way to think about the cross? And how should we in light of what the Bible says? So if you're unfamiliar with our church, one of the one of the analogies we like to do just to kind of help frame things, help us think about things, is, you know, as of right now, I can use mass. It's not contingent on feelings and, and what you think and opinions. But we know that two plus two is four. This is true, correct? Doesn't matter if you have cancer. It doesn't matter if you're from a different country. It doesn't matter if you are having a bad day. No matter what, two plus two is four. It can't be four and five. It can't be five or six. It is simply only four. You guys tracking with me? Yes, good. I feel like I can use that for two more years and it's going to be a whole new. Anyways, I got to move on. So if someone says they're 18 years old, they either are or they are not. I fear there's a time when a kid can say, I feel 18, so give me whatever I want, right? And then there's going to be a time when the parent says, you know what? I feel like you're 18. You get out of my house. That's going to work both ways, right? And that's going to happen. But here's the thing. It is a propositional statement. They either are 18 or are not 18. They can't both be 18 and not 18 at the same time. Is this true? Okay, you guys working with me? So you think through this now propositional statements, propositional truth, it's either yes or no. It's what plagues us in parenting, isn't it? A simple question, did you make your bed? Well, that depends. What do you mean it depends? It's yes or no. Well, you see, Dad, COVID's been really hard on me, right? No, 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 no. Yes or no. My sister, my brother, you're not answering the question. Isn't that parenting in a nutshell, right? Like, it's a simple yes or no. Either you did or you did not do what I asked. This is the same thing about the cross of Christ. This is the same thing about Easter. Either he did die on the cross. Either he is the Son of God. Either he did resurrect or he didn't. And no circumstance, experience can negate nor change that. And what the world wants you to think is that because you see evil, you see poverty, you have financial crisis, that somehow Christ now did not die on the cross. So here's the thing. He made the claim. I am the Son of God. I am the resurrection. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Because He made those statements, they are either true or false. Our experiences of church do not change that. There are many people, they've come to church, They've been hit over the head and beaten by people. They've been let down by Christian people who they trusted. 
They've been forgotten and laughed at and mocked. And while those are very sad sentiments, it does not change that either Jesus did or did not die on the cross. You guys tracking with me? Okay. We cannot allow circumstances, experiences, and feelings to somehow dictate what is either true or false. And what the Bible tells us is regardless of all these things, that Jesus absolutely rose from the dead. And that belief in the resurrection of Jesus is central to the Christian faith. And here is why. I want to open up to 1 Corinthians 15, 13 through 19. And you got to realize, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, these are some of the closest written books to the resurrection as possible. This is paramount to the early evangelism and establishment of the church. Okay? This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 13. He says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. It's pretty blunt, isn't it? It's very straightforward. 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true, that the dead are not raised. He's saying even God's a liar if this didn't happen, right? 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. That's heavy, isn't it? 18, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. He's saying, if the resurrection is not true, there is no payment for our sins. We are still enemies with God, and hell will be our forever home. There is no way to be at peace with God. There's no way for our sin to be paid for because a perfect man lived, a perfect man died, and sin still reigned, conquered, and defeated him. The serpent was not defeated. Rather, the serpent defeated him. So he's saying, if the resurrection is not true, all of this falls apart. This is why it's paramount that the resurrection we understand in believing that Christ rose from the dead is huge to our faith because it, it abolishes sin, right? He defeats sin. He allows us to have a way to be with God because our sin is paid for. And so this is typically when people say, I just, I'm not sure I can believe in that. And people play maybe an academic card that they're smarter. They don't believe in silly fairy tales as the story told us. They don't believe in these things. And so what I, what I want to do quickly is examine some truths about the resurrection and, and then realize that there is ample, reasonable faith to believe it. And if that is true, what are the consequences of that belief? Okay. These are great things to talk about over dinner and the car ride, right? These are good things. So you can laugh. That's funny, right? These are hard things to talk about. We're going to look at what's called the, the argument of the minimum or the minimal facts. These are facts that even non-Christians agree with about the resurrection. And I want us to look at these and, and say like, wow, there's reasonableness to believing in the resurrection when you, when you put it all together. Okay? First is the, when you look at Jesus died by Roman crucifixion. They don't argue that. He was a real person that lived during the real time 
and he really died on a cross at the hands of the Romans. They don't dispute that, okay? That's a real event. They're not saying they believe in the resurrection. They're just saying that he really died on the cross. Two, the disciples had experiences that they thought were actual appearances of the risen Jesus. So it's saying there's accounts of Christians saying they saw Jesus post-resurrection. Now that's not saying they believe these people. They're just saying there's evidence that there were people that really said they saw the resurrected Jesus. Three, the disciples were thoroughly transformed, even willing to die for this belief. Now this is one of the more powerful evidences. It's saying that there were people that, that went to a cross that took stones, lashings, beatings, when if it was a lie, they could have just said, it's a lie, leave me alone. Saying they were so much committed or believed so much that they saw him, they took these beatings, they took this punishment, and it is written that these things happened, right? Four, the apostolic proclamation of the resurrection began very early when the church was in its infancy. So it's not saying we tried to start the church, it didn't work for hundreds of years, so then we made up the resurrection, and then these things started happening. No, 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 no. Resurrection, Pentecost, church, boom. It happens sequentially in that order. It's like very tight. Last two. One, James, the brother of Jesus, was known, known, half-brother of Jesus, for not believing him. Imagine growing up with the Messiah. You're like, sure, you're the son of God. Very convenient, right? And so it's saying James, with that doubt later on, he becomes a pastor, right? And he believes. The last one, Saul, the one who killed the most Christians, right? persecutor of Christians, that there's this mass conversion that he becomes a Christian, a follower of Jesus. He plants churches, takes beatings, gets stoned. So it, they're saying it's true that there was an account of that transformation of that man. Okay? When you look at all of those facts, it's, saying it's reasonable to believe that Jesus did rise from the dead. Now, here's where we have to kind of really think through this. There's some people say, I just don't believe. I just don't believe that he could do that. Well, here's the thing. If you don't believe, it doesn't mean you're smarter than a Christian. It doesn't mean you're smarter than people who believe in the resurrection. Because the reality is you cannot escape what is called faith. Everyone submits to faith in one form or another. I don't have time to walk all the way through this, but just think through this. Can you prove God doesn't exist? Not a trick question. No, you can't. You have faith he doesn't believe. You trust that he doesn't believe. Do you parent your kids? Do your kids have rules? Yes, I hope so. If not, we have wonderful counseling for you, right? Like, you need to, yes, you do. Why? Because you believe there's a right and wrong. You believe you shouldn't hit your sister. You shouldn't do this. There is a belief, there is a faith somewhere. It is written that, or, or believed that you cannot do this. Everyone has a level of faith. Now, the question is, how do you determine which faith is more reasonable? Well, we're going to say the Bible. It's revealed God's word. It reveals what God desires. Jesus Christ revealed the witnesses. You come to the other side of this, and you're trying to parent, you're trying to live life. How do you tell your kids, you can't do that? Says who? Well, says me. Well, then they say, well, what about me? And you're like, well, that won't ever matter, right? Until the culture catches on, and they say, you know what? As a parent, you can't tell your kid they're male or female. Who are you to tell them? That's the beginning. Where do you think that road continues to go down? 
Because it's a true statement, right? Who are you? On what basis do you make that claim? How do you substantiate that they can or can't be? Because inevitably what they're saying is we believe in ourselves, that we determine what is right, we determine what is wrong, and how dare you tell that little kid who's little that they can or can't do something. So when you look at it, the reasonableness of Christianity is huge because God makes a way for us to be with him. He's creator. He gives us the moral law. He makes a way for us to be with him with Jesus. There's witnesses. There's transformation. All of these things are there. Question is, if you believe that, then what's the correlation? Well, this text says is that we would speak. That if you believe that you would speak, he's quoting Psalm 116. He says, I believe and so I spoke. We also believe. He's saying we believe that Christ died for our sins. Therefore, we share, we tell that Christ did this for us. This is huge. Why? Because so many Christians want to divorce these two actions. They'll say, you know what? I believe in God. Fair. Earth came from somewhere. I'm not comfortable with the monkey idea, right? I'm good with this. And then they're like, the Bible, it's been there. I get where it's going. I believe Jesus was a real person. I even believe he rose from the dead. But I do not believe he can tell me what to do, how to be married, how to parent, how to spend my money how to think, if I should go to church, if I should sing. He cannot do that. So the question is, on what basis do we believe, have faith in the resurrection, but divorce everything that comes as a consequence of the resurrection? That's a fair question, isn't it? And if you think I'm making it up, just go right back to your text. Verse 14, speaking or speak, knowing that he who raised the, what's that word there, Lord Jesus. Lord means king. The king. And he's saying that man who died for you, paid for you, is king. He is in charge. Believing in him, he says, I am the truth. So he gets to be in charge of all things. On what basis do you say, I believe he saved me, but I don't believe he has the right to tell me what to do? That is the problem in the church. We have divorced belief in following from belief in dying on the cross. The two go together. If we believe, then we speak. That is the correlation. And we have divorced them. Think about this. If we will not speak as Christ spoke, we will not teach what he taught, it's probably because we don't believe. And so the question is, when you look at the resurrection, are you saying, I don't just believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, that he paid, that he rose, that he is now Lord of my life. He paid for everything. He's the creator of all things. He is who he says he is. The totality of who he says, the truth, the way to God, the alpha, the omega, the creator, what he says about marriage, what he says about money, what he says about going to church, what he says about submitting to your parents, what he says about being a citizen, everything he says I submit to, I will speak of it because I will be with him one day. Now, here's the thing. We put faith in a lot of things. The question is, is it as reasonable as what we see in the crucifixion, reasonable as what we see in the resurrection, that God, the author, creator of life, would make a way for us to be with him through Jesus and then communicate it through his word? Here's the thing. 
This has been tried and true and celebrated for over 2,000 years. On what basis do you look at the cross and say, it's not real? Jesus didn't die on the cross. He didn't resurrect. And you can't use your feelings. You can't blame some pastor that let you down. You can't blame your parents who crammed it down your throat and made you go to church and Easter and wear dresses and suits that you didn't like. Right? And you can't blame that person you dated that was a thumper and beat you over the head with their Bible. Why? Because Jesus made the claim, not them. And either Jesus is true or Jesus is false. And what we're saying is that Jesus is true. That we can look at the cross, know he lived and he died just as he said he would. Now, the correlation is that we would speak of these things. But what happens? Life gets in the way. We have illness and sickness, mental health, chaotic economy, things going down, children running away, hating their parents, changing all these things. And all of a sudden, what happens? Verse 16, so we do not lose heart. Though the outer self is wasting away and the inner self is being renewed day by day, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. What's he getting at? He's saying, hey, Christian, you're going to believe that Christ was resurrected. That you're going to go be with him one day. But there's going to be this temptation to lose heart that every time something bad happens, the world, your family, or Satan will tell you, he doesn't love you. Look at how unhealthy you are. Look at how ugly you are. Look at your job. Look at your America. Look at your freedom. Look at this. He doesn't love you. The cross never happened. He's saying, don't lose heart. Circumstances never change the reality that he did do what he said he would do. Circumstances never change that he is who he said he is. Circumstances don't change that heaven is your home and He is your Father forever. He is your Savior forever. He is your King who died for you and purchased you. You're like, wow, you're reading into the text a lot there, Pastor. Okay, let's go right back to it then. 16, though the outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. The text tells us this world will waste away. Your politics, your job, your health, the people you love, it will all end up in a graveyard or a junkyard. It will waste away. It will not be there forever. So do not allow the seen things to diminish the unseen things. The reality that Christ died for you, that God is your Father and He loves you and made a way for you to be with Him through His Son, Jesus. Now keep looking away. Look at this next phrase. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. How dare the Bible make such a claim? Don't you think? Light momentary affliction. When you look at the people who have died, suffered, lost their job, lost their children, mental illness, how do you make the claim? light and momentary affliction. 
When you look at disciples being crucified, stoned, beaten, taken from their families, how do you make the claim light, momentary affliction? This is how. Because no matter how good earth gets, heaven will always be better. Think about this. You walk this through with your children all the time. They go to Disneyland. And you're like, this is so great. Is, it, is heaven going to be better than this? And they're like, yes. And you're like, there's no way. Is there cotton candy in heaven? You're like, it's even better than that. You're not going to have to worry about it. And then you go on vacation. They're like, is heaven even better than the beach or the mountains, whatever it is? You're like, it's better than that. And then your kid starts to drive. Please, Jesus, come back before that. But like, right, he starts to drive. And like, nothing better than this freedom. I can go myself. I can go. And then they're 18, and I can do what I want. And then they get married, and there's like, nothing can be better than this. And then you have kids, and oh, this is the greatest. And then it's grandkids and retirement. No matter what the greatest thing you experience, nothing will be greater than heaven. Nothing. Now, here's the flip of that. No matter what you're going through, nothing will ever be worse than hell. Let that sink in for a second. Nothing will ever be worse than hell. That's how the Bible makes that claim. Light, momentary affliction. Because whatever it is, it could be worse. It could be eternal torment, eternally separated from God. So whatever it is, it is merely preparing you for the weight of glory that waits before you in Christ Jesus. This is why he says, Christians, do not lose heart. The world needs victory. Think of this. The world is losing. It's losing in its economy, possibly on the verge of war, its moral compass, the family structure, the basic just history. All of these things are being lost. And what do they need to know? That this is light, momentary affliction compared to what Christ has for us. They're saying, if you believe in Jesus, he is your king. Do not lose heart because one day you'll be in heaven. You'll never have to worry about going to hell. So whatever you are going through, it is light and it is momentary. Saying people need to hear that truth. This is why he says, back it up in 14 and 15. We need to speak because we believe that grace extends to more and more people. It may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. That people everywhere might see as, as the world gets harder, that Christians get louder. We don't lose heart. We are not silenced. That no matter if our freedom is taken away, if our money is taken away, our privilege is taken away, it is light and momentary because we believe in Jesus. We have heaven where there is no crying, there is no pain, there is no driver's license to worry about, right? It is ours to look forward to, and it is forever ours. See, what we've done, church, is we have allowed the things that are seen to diminish the things that are unseen. This is simply what the Bible says we cannot do. Look at 17 and 18 as it, as it winds this down. It says, this affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory 
beyond all comparison. I mean, think about that really quick. Jesus is better than whatever you can fill that blank in with. Jesus is better than. It's saying he's even better than whatever you're comparing him to. There's nothing you can compare him to that he's not better than. Isn't that fantastic? I guess I'll get excited by myself. That's okay. As we look, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. What is he saying? He's saying, you know what? It fails in comparison to the things that are seen. Why? Because you cannot take your American citizenship to heaven. You cannot take your job to heaven. You cannot take your title. You cannot take your car. You cannot take your vacation home. You cannot take your savings. All of those things will waste away. All of those things will pass. They fail in comparison to Jesus. Therefore, right? Look to the things that are seen, but look to the things that are unseen. For the things that are, are seen are transient. They pass away. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Saying, focus on the things that are eternal. See, Easter should not just be our once or twice a year celebration. Oh yeah, I believe. If you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, he is the payment, he is what makes you at peace with God the Father, then you also believe what he commanded. You also believe all that he would require because he saved you and he loved you and you desire nothing more than to be with him forever. That's why when you come to church, it's just, it's, it's a slice, it's a picture, it's a glimpse into heaven where you get to come and celebrate that God loved you and sent his son. You get to hear from him, from his word. You get other people to talk about him. And all of a sudden, just for a brief moment, that affliction, that cancer, that bad marriage, that bad job, those kids that don't like you, it all stands still while you worship and sing to the one who loved you perfectly knows you completely, and will be with you forever. Easter is just the reminder. Why? Because he says we're to do this day by day. Day by day. Don't lose heart. I believe I speak. I don't focus on the things that are seen. I focus on the things that are unseen. I'm forgiven. I'm loved. I'm redeemed. I'm paid for. Heaven is my home. Jesus is my king. And no matter the circumstance, I will praise him. This is why it says in verse 15, more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. It's saying the more people hear, hey, this world's wasting away. So I can't make as much money. I can't do as many things. I can't Go as many places. My health is limited. My freedom is limited. Nothing is better than knowing and loving and following Jesus. The things unseen. Because he paid for me. And he loved me. That's what a dying world needs to hear, is it not? You see, as the church, we cannot continue to allow the things that are seen to diminish the things that are unseen. Because it is a false, false narrative that somehow our bad circumstances change the cross. 
Because either he did or he didn't. And if he did, it changes everything. He's our king. He's our savior. He's our Lord. And we are to follow him forever. Now, here's the thing. If you're not a Christian, God extends that offer, right? Grace is extended. Your sins can be forgiven. And if you're not a Christian, no matter how you feel about church, how you feel about Christians, how you feel about pastors, you still have to answer the question. Did he rise from the dead? And if not, on what basis? Because it is the same as two plus two is four. It is simply true or it is simply false. If it is true, what is the necessary consequences of that? The Bible says that we would speak, we would extend, we would tell, we would not give up, we would not lose heart, we would not focus on the things perishing, we would focus on the things that are eternal, and we would celebrate them until heaven, where Jesus calls us home. See, Easter is simply the reminder of what we are to do every single day to be renewed, that the things in this world are passing away and that he is eternal and that he died for us and he loves us and he is to be celebrated now and forever. Amen? Let's pray. God, we love you and we praise you and we thank you for the gift that is your son, Jesus Christ. God, we confess that we focus on the things that are seen too much. And we allow the things that are seen to affect our affection for the things that are unseen. Namely, your love, your power, your might, your forgiveness, your mercy, your grace. All these things that are unseen are ours in Christ because he paid that we might be in a relationship with you. God, may that be at the front and center of all we do. God, may we praise you that as, as many good things are here on earth, nothing will be as glorious as heaven. May we praise you now for that. God, may we praise you that as bad as things get on this earth, nothing will be as bad as hell. We praise you that we can cling to you we know that you do not promise better circumstances, but you do promise you will never leave us or forsake us. You are always our Father. You love us completely and perfectly. It is our prayer now that we would celebrate you in a manner that you deserve and are worthy of, that we would sing with our heart, our might, our soul, praising and thanking you for the things that are unseen. Our sins are paid for. That we do not bear the weight of earning our salvation. We do not bear the weight of trying to get you to not be at war with us. That Christ, your son, did that for us. And we would celebrate and thank him for that reality. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.